Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers who are shaping the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my articles. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. Here is the, here is the route map to take us forward, because unlike any other party standing at this election, we're going to get Brexit done. This week's edition looks at Britain's relationship with Europe ahead of the election on December the 12th. And to discuss that, I'm joined by two foreign correspondents who are based here in London. Dennis Staunton is London editor for the Irish Times, and Tessa Shiskovitz is UK correspondent for the Austrian news magazine Profil and author of a recent book on Brexit called Echte Englander, or Real Englanders. Both Tessa and Dennis are old friends of mine. We were foreign correspondents together in Brussels in the early 2000s. And now, 15 years later, we're all based in London in a very different epoch, covering something that would have been very hard to imagine back then, Britain's departure from the European Union. So I started by asking Tessa how she's finding covering the election, and does she feel that this is a Brexit election? Well, it certainly is a Brexit election, and underneath it is looming what Britain really needs, which is sort of a return to tackling the problems that it really has. You know, Europe, I don't think, is the real problem that Britain has. And we will see now in the next year how it develops. But the entire question of what the identity of Britain in the 21st century should be, to go away from Europe doesn't necessarily mean that you will find something on the other side that will welcome you. The last years have shown how much closer Britain actually is to the values of the European Union than it is maybe to the people that you'll have to schmooze up to now in the future, if it's Donald Trump or the Turkish president or the Saudi royal family. I mean, even the Chinese question will be an interesting one to tackle. Yeah, and when you're out following the campaign, do you find in the constituencies and talking to people and to politicians, that they're very concerned about Brexit? Does it come up a lot? And what do you make of the debate? Well, I think people have made up their mind about Brexit a long time ago. So there's not a lot that you can find now to argue which has changed. It's just that they seem to take the view that if they are for leaving or if they have voted for leave, that they will now go for Boris Johnson as the one to deliver it. And that those who are sitting on the fence don't seem to have a lot of sympathy because people want either in or out and not to sit and wait. And Dennis, you've also been out and about on the campaign trail. And I should make clear, we're speaking about a week before Donald Trump is about to come to Britain, about two weeks before the vote. So a lot can happen. But would you characterize this as a Brexit election as well? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you, you know, Brexit occupies this huge space at the center of the campaign. It pushes everything else out of the way. And yet it's an empty space because nobody's really talking about Brexit in any useful way. So the conservative message is get Brexit done. This is something that's got to be got out of the way so we can get on to the real business, like those things Tess is talking about, like what are we going to do about the economy? 
And then, you know, the Liberal Democrats are saying, let's cancel Brexit. And the Labour Party is saying, let's have another vote on it. But the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, is saying he's not going to say exactly where he stands on it. So what nobody is actually talking about is, for example, the next phase of the Brexit negotiations. If, say, Boris Johnson wins the election and the UK leaves the European Union at the end of January, what happens then in terms of the negotiations with the EU? What can Britain hope for? What ought it to be going for? How can you reconcile what Boris Johnson is looking for in terms of freedom to diverge and the economic interests of the country? That debate's not happening. In the same way, even those who want a second referendum are not talking about, first of all, how they would fight that referendum, or indeed, if Britain decided to remain in the European Union, what happens then? What is Britain's future in the European Union? And how do you reconcile the two sides in the Brexit debate? Yeah, and in a funny way, it's almost a repetition of what originally happened in the Brexit referendum, where you had a very, very empty debate, which didn't look at the content. And I have this horrible feeling watching this election that, as you say, there are a lot of Brexit questions, which will immediately land on Boris Johnson, if it's him's desk, as in how the hell do you get this trade agreement within a year? And that is just not being debated. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's not there at all. And and obviously, it serves the specific political interests of each of the parties to approach it the way they are. But it does seem extraordinary because, of course, you know, the other thing is that, I mean, this is a country going through an unusual sort of double crisis in terms of, on the one hand, there's the question of Britain's relationship with the rest of Europe. And there's also the question of the future of the United Kingdom. And the constitutional question, which is very much present in Scotland and in a different way in Northern Ireland because of the nature of the Brexit deal. It's not really discussed in England. And one of the things that's not discussed is, for example, if you did want to keep the United Kingdom together, what might you do in terms of constitutional change to make that happen or to make it less likely that it would break up? So in other words, these two huge questions and things are looming, and yet they don't really have a place in the debate during the campaign. And I think it's partly that the questions are too difficult, and that also because of the nature of the campaign that you were describing in terms of Brexit, and the fact that Boris Johnson's wing of the Conservative Party is now in the ascendant, essentially their approach and Boris Johnson's approach is to say everything's going to be fine, don't worry about it, and look Everybody said I couldn't get a new deal after Theresa May. I did. And they're all just doomsayers and doom mongers. Also, these questions are kind of, you know, they're quite difficult questions. I think there are also two issues that are specific for the English question and for the conservative English part of this debate. And one is that Britain is overwhelmed by this populist wave because the system is not made for it. It was so comfortable always to know that you get a majority if you're one of these two big parties, and that's over now. And the second thing is that within the Conservative Party, populism has led to the fact that a very tiny and relatively eccentric part of the Conservative Party has taken over the reins of the party and is now unleashing some kind of English nationalism that is much too much for many people to bear who would like to vote for the Conservative Party, but are now sitting with people who don't even think about the future of the United Kingdom because they've never thought of Scotland or Northern Ireland and their fate. And that's really something which is so amazing for us when we travel now around in the United Kingdom during this election campaign to see how little thought was 
spent on what it means for Northern Ireland to have Brexit in the first place, but now also if there is a border in the Irish Sea or if it's on the island itself and what it will mean. Scotland, the same thing. I mean, it's really such a low point of political leadership and also of political thinking within the Tory party not to have thought this through before, that the idea that Little England will come out of this process is something that is so tragic for everyone who is involved and that nobody really discusses this even in this campaign is, for me, almost unbelievable. I'm not sure I would describe it as English nationalism. I think it's a kind of an English introspection or an English indifference. But I don't think that it's especially about, I would say, English identity in opposition to anything else. I think that you're absolutely right, Tessa, when you say that there is an indifference to the impact of this decision on other parts of the United Kingdom, and it's most notable where Ireland and Northern Ireland is concerned. But it's also true of Scotland. And what is striking is the indifference of a lot of English conservatives to what happens to the union, even though it's, they say... It is very interesting, I mean, because, you know, when I think of other nationalisms that I follow overseas, they tend to be very concerned with territory and with territorial claims. You know, the Chinese nationalism is all about Taiwan, Hong Kong, even in Europe, Hungarian nationalism looks to regaining territories that were lost. And here you have English nationalism, which seems quite indifferent to the idea of losing historic parts of the country. It is slightly baffling. But it's the complacency and it's also this lack right. of thinking what it actually means to have had more than only English territory, but Scottish and parts of Ireland now also under English control, more or less. This British umbrella was very good for the English to have their way. And this is now under threat. And it's unbelievable that nobody thinks of it. So the nationalism is, as you're rightly saying, not expansionist. It's not territorial in that sense. But it's very much the feeling of being in a position of power and being the ones who call the shots. And this will change because I think the harder the Brexit, the faster that you have a second referendum in Scotland and Scotland will be gone. Well, we'll come to Scotland in a second because I know you've both been up there. But Dennis, I mean, we've also talked about Ireland, and Ireland's played a crucial role in this whole Brexit story so far. I initially, talk about complacent, assumed that Brexit would probably be either neutral or quite good for Ireland, that you might get a lot of investment that would have come to the UK. The more I speak to Irish people, though, they seem very worried about it. Yeah, I think it's bad for Ireland in three ways, really. It's bad economically because the UK is still an important trading partner and anything that creates any kind of friction there is going to be bad for Ireland. If, for example, it's bad for Britain economically, that will have an impact on Ireland as well. It's bad diplomatically because Britain was Ireland's ally. Often in Brussels, they saw eye to eye on a lot of the issues, particularly economic issues and things like taxation. And then thirdly, and the main thing really, the biggest problem is it destabilizes the settlement in Northern Ireland. And the settlement in Northern Ireland in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement was based on the idea that you could be British or Irish or both. And because both were in the single market and both in the European Union, both Britain and Ireland, you didn't have to have a border. And it meant that all of those barriers could dissolve. And so if, for example, you were a member of the nationalist community in Northern Ireland, it didn't really matter that you weren't part of a unitary Irish state because you could live your life 
as if you were as Irish as you wanted to be and still living in the British state. And there are lots of things that Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland liked about the British state, like the National Health Service. So that allowed the settlement to be stable. And this, because it raises all kinds of questions that nobody had to ask for 20 years, now destabilizes it. So what you've now found is that both the nationalist population, they were unsettled by the idea that you might have a hard border on the island of Ireland. And now the unionist community is unsettled by the idea that there's going to be an economic border in the Irish Sea and that they're somehow being pushed away from their connection with the rest of the United Kingdom. Another thing that's often said is that Brexit will lead to United Ireland. Do you believe that? I don't think it's immediately or imminently going to do so. But I think that when unionists say that Boris Johnson's deal, which essentially leaves Northern Ireland within the EU in economic terms, that that is certainly going to propel Northern Ireland towards the rest of the island of Ireland, because a lot of the decisions that are going to be made, economic decisions about regulation, that will affect Northern Ireland, the only people who are going to be at the table in Brussels to talk about them are going to be the Dublin government. So when unionists complain about the fact that this does weaken their ties to the union, it's true, I think. And that's something which I think is going to have to be managed very carefully, both from London and from Dublin as well. And so I don't think anybody, or at least very few people in the government in Dublin or in government circles in Dublin, would really want to consider the imminent prospect of a united Ireland. And I think that what you may find, if things do change, is that it's not actually a traditional united Ireland of a unitary state where everybody is under the same Irish flag that we have now and would rather be a new, what they would call an agreed Ireland, which takes account of the fact that there are two communities living on the island and so that it would actually effectively be a new state rather than just the Irish state taking over the rest of the island. Right. And Tessa, I mean, you've written a book for an Austrian and German audience about Brexit. When you cover this election, when you cover Brexit, do you find back in Austria that Brexit is still of interest or have people begun to write the UK out of their imaginations? Well, the German and the Austrian public were always very much against Brexit, of course, because it sort of undermines also the strength of the European Union in those rather pro-European countries itself. In Austria, we had a special situation because we had just a very complicated far-right party in government that originally sympathized with Brexit. And then when people understood that this is not a successful project, at least for the moment, just to leave the European Union is not a picnic. So they started to change their tone also, sort of not even the far-right anymore thinks that somebody should have a referendum on EU membership. And after four years of really complicated and painful Brexit negotiations, people are tired of it. In conversations in Berlin and in Vienna, I always say if people now easily say Brexit is a foregone conclusion and if Britain wants to leave, then they should go and leave us alone, etc. I think we should still not dismiss the idea that Britain can change its mind. You know, these elections, even if we pretend Boris Johnson has already won, he has not won yet. So we should not throw half of the country here under the red bus just because the opinion polls point to this. I think we should still keep the door open and the public opinion, if it's in Brussels or in Vienna or in Berlin, should be kind to this idea and not dismiss it, that Britain is not totally finished with the European Union yet. Mm. And what about something else that I heard said by Sebastian Kurz, the Chancellor of Austria, where he said that Brexit, at least on the right in Austria, had weakened the image of the European Union. He said that he gets people saying to him, 
Why should we Austrians be part of a European Union that does not include rich, successful countries like Switzerland and Norway and now the UK, but that does include poorer countries, Bulgaria, Romania? Is that something that you ever hear? Well, it looks to me like a really small-minded and not very well-informed vision of Europe as a whole. And if you think that Austria is a country of 8 million people, you know, if Britain leaves, it will still be a medium power with a former empire in its historical luggage, which is a different story from a small country in the center of Europe. I mean, we cannot leave to anything. We cannot sail off into the global waters. We have profited enormously from being a member of the European Union. I mean, it's true that some of the Eastern or Southeastern European members might be poorer than others, but the whole beauty of the European Union and the freedom of movement has meant that we got cheap labor and they got support to bring their economies up to speed. So there's a lot of good that actually happened. And Dennis, how has it affected the Irish debate? I mean, presumably Ireland follows Brexit incredibly closely. It follows it very closely. And I think there's a divergence between the view of the state or of the government and what the people would feel. So I think a lot of the Irish people would feel very much as Tessa does, which is that Brexit was a mistake. At least half of the British people realize it was. And if this thing can be reversed, then we should do all we can to help them. I think the Irish government feels we now have a deal which we can live with. And so in that sense, if Boris Johnson comes back, does that deal, the withdrawal agreement gets through, we'll work out what we do about phase two after that. But at least we have protected our primary interest, which is to do with the border and uh, Northern Ireland. And then we we'll work out everything else, whereas any other outcome means uncertainty. And I think actually this is a view that's shared in a lot of the chancelleries of Europe, that you know it's not even so much Brexit exhaustion as just it has taken a long time to get to this point. If you've got a sure thing, in terms of a deal, go for that, rather than opening up months more of uncertainty and more negotiations. And also, if, for example, Britain decided to remain in the European Union and the margin was quite narrow, is the Brexit movement going to die or is it going to come roaring back in five and years? And you'll have time? a very unhappy Britain now inside the club. OK, well, let's just finish by talking about the future of the European Union then. As I mentioned, we were all there 15 years or so ago, which was a very different period before the financial crisis before Donald Trump, before the annexation of Ukraine by the Russians, etc. A much more optimistic period for the European Union. Just in broad terms, how optimistic or otherwise are you about the future of the EU in this new environment, Tessa? Optimistic is a good term here because, of course, nobody's really optimistic at the moment concerning further integration, which is incredibly hard to do even if Britain leaves, because there's a lot of uncertainty about the German situation. You know, Germany is just on the verge now to have to deal with the same right-wing populist xenophobic forces coming stronger and stronger up in regional governments. And they might also put more pressure on the federal politics of Germany. And we have the situation on the West Balkan where you have strong Russian and Chinese influence. And if the EU cannot come up with really clear, good messages for this part of Southeastern Europe, it will be very problematic to continue between accession or not accession. We have a situation on the borders, which is terrible because of the refugee crisis. All these huge, huge problems have to be tackled. So if we manage in the EU without Britain 
to find answers to these big questions, we will be very busy for the next years. But there could also be other developments in America, for example. If America changes presidency towards a more global, multilateral administration, that could change the situation and send different vibes to Europe again. So I'm not completely pessimistic and I don't think the European Union will dissolve and just say goodbye to all these ideas that have actually served us very well. I think everything that Tessa said is true in terms of all the problems. I think I am optimistic and partly because of the Brexit process. I think the Brexit process has in a way been clarifying for the Europeans because it reminded the European Union of what it is that they are determined to protect and defend to the last. And that is the core of it, the single market. Because what was striking throughout the negotiations was the cohesiveness of the European position. So I think that at its core, in terms of the core function of the European Union, that is quite strong. And some of the other economic elements of the European Union functions are also very strong. All of those other parts in terms of collective action about immigration or about you know, an asylum policy or foreign policy, they were always going to be difficult. And so I think that the experience of the way in which the Europeans have dealt with Brexit has revealed a certain strength within the structure. And also, as you and Tessa were pointing out, it's also served as a kind of an inoculating things so that other countries are not really going to start thinking about leaving. So if nothing else, Britain's done Europe a service by acting as a sort of terrible warning. Yeah, exactly. Some kind of a, a don't warning. Go there. Uh, uh, no, don't go there. Yeah. It's a bit too expensive to be a warning. I think it should have reconsidered this before and not sort of have this idea now as an afterthought. You know, to come back for one second to Scotland, they told us now in Glasgow that a lot of companies are thinking to relocate their headquarters to Belfast because the conditions to trade with Europe will just be so much better because they will still be in the customs union and in parts of the single market. And if that is the essence of Brexit, that Belfast is the best place to be, then good luck with Brexit. Belfast is a very nice city. For, it is a very nice say. city. Guess, no, no. But it is a kind of historic irony, isn't it, that if Northern Ireland actually ends up benefiting from this. Uh, yes, yeah, and I think that actually the deal is good for Northern Ireland in that it does give it the best of both worlds. Economically, I think, though, it does create its own political problems because of the alienation of the unionist community, and that's something which is going to be a problem. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now, but maybe after the election we can all come back and discuss where it's left us. But for the moment, thank you very much to Tessa Shiskovitz and to Dennis Staunton. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash review. Until next week, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.